0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hite.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Quick-starting your GMing career. Fraternal side degrees. And Ken's scouring of Oklahoma City bookstores. gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show.
1: Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school.
0: Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like
1: trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider.
0: Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one.
1: The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose.
0: Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure.
1: That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round.
0: That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider.
1: Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free.
0: That's 52 cards, perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico.
1: And if you're in the U.S., They'll pay for shipping, too.
0: Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.?
1: Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too.
0: Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you.
1: In Mad Scientist University, everyone
0: gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen.
1: And then the TA picks a winner.
0: And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free.
1: Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts?
0: If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com
1: slash Ken and Robin dash MSU.
0: That's atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash M like Mike, S like sugar, U like union.
1: Or follow the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's the way to do it. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. In this case, a listener and estimable donor, Alex Guerrero, has uh, played before but never GM'd. He wants to introduce a trio of interested neophytes slash family members to role-playing through a session of Fear Itself. Fear Itself, of course, is the gumshoe game in which ordinary people go up against occult forces and horror movie situations. And his question is, what tips do you have on pacing and not overthinking. Uh, Ken, I'm sure you never overthink it, so uh, how would you uh, help a player who uh, wants to turn uh, GM into not overthinking?
1: Basically, the way that you don't overthink is, um, and believe me, I think that my players right now are saying, hey, you know, wouldn't kill you to overthink once in a while? But uh, (laughs) (laughs) the way that you don't overthink is that you... Begin with the sort of direction, like one scene, one element, one core fear that you're trying to point things to. Don't, you know, think, oh, there has to be this ambush and there has to be four vampires and there has to be two werewolves. Don't worry about that stuff. Just think, what is the fundamental type of fear I'm trying to construct, especially in a fear itself session? And is it, you know, chase fear? Is it isolation fear? Is it poisoning, spiders? What's the sort of fear you're looking for? And then whenever you feel yourself drifting away and getting lost, just point the game back toward that fear. Because, again, fear itself is about going toward that horror, that horror moment. And if you're thinking, well, they're not really trapped in the uh, house yet, but I want to do isolation horror, I want to do helplessness horror, Oh, I know I can have their cell phones all go out. I can have their their car break down. I can do something else. I can uh present at the very least I can say the trees to be closing in like they're hurting you down this road some anything that you're doing you can point towards that one sensation that emotional keynote that you're trying to drive or through line that you're trying to drive uh the 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 scenario through or with i guess not through.
0: The seasoned listener will detect that I uh, paraphrased uh, Alex's longer question a bit. And in the question, he also specifies that he's thinking for of uh, doing like about a two-hour session. So that suggests uh, there's not a lot of time to overthink. And since you've got a group of uh, new players who think the idea of role-playing is kind of interesting but haven't done it yet, uh, there is no shame whatsoever in ruthlessly stealing from source material that they will find familiar. So since you've decided to play a horror game, uh, think of a horror movie that they will all have either seen or like or just sort of know by osmosis. And since you're doing a two-hour session, I would skip all of the introductory material in which you normally draw somebody into um, an adventure and have them make initial choices that affect the situation and rather begin deep in the heart of the scenario. So, uh, you know, if they're all in, a, you know, a final destination movie where they have, uh, thwarted fate and Rube Goldberg uh, coincidences are trying to destroy them. Or if they're in a paranormal activity movie where the, uh, demons are, Infesting the house or haunting them, and they can 't get out, start with the the situation already bad. start with them in the house, start with them uh, already having tempted fate and and facing the final confrontation because really uh, for this first thing you 're just running a demo, and what you 're demoing is not fear itself per se, or the Gumshoe rules, you're demoing the entire concept of role-playing. So also think of, as you create this situation, something for each of their characters, and I would submit for a two-hour session, you should assign them pretty simple, easy-to-play, kind of iconic, simple archetypal characters, and give them each a way of interacting with the situation. So if it's the paranormal activity idea, you know, one of them is the... Exorcist, and the other one is the kid who uh, foolishly invoked whatever it is that uh, reawakened the demon in the house, and the, the maybe the third character is is the parent of the kid, so that you have um, really obvious roles for them to play in the story, and to therefore hook into and uh, get used to the whole concept of role playing and making decisions in character.
1: And the other great thing about a two hour session is that pacing almost solves itself. There's, they, there's going to be that part where people are sort of getting used to role playing, figuring out how they do this crazy thing. And when do I roll a die? And that's when you can sort of start feeding the creepy details. And then once they feel confident enough about the rules, that's when they can have the first encounter with the uh, serial killer or the ghost or, or whatever it is. And then, um, or the Rube Goldberg death machine. And then after that, tension has uh, sort of spent itself, you immediately begin moving them towards the next one. And that can either be through a simple chase in which now you just roll to get away or you or you just narratively get away because you obviously need to narratively get away so there can be another confrontation. Um, you should be able in a two-hour session to get through with new players two confrontations so you know that one is going to be the setup where you introduce how bad the problem is and uh demonstrate the terror. Then the session where everyone reacts to the terror. And then the final bit where they fight the terror and hopefully they fight it effectively, but given that it's fear itself, who can say, and that's when you sort of look at your list of, of character hooks and you say, have I brought this in? Have I not brought this in? And you look at your list of, or your, not your list, but the characteristics of that core fear you're going for. And you say, what am I missing? Time to put it in. So, the pacing is really going to solve itself with a two-hour session. Um, I think that if you were going for a four-hour session, you would really have to start looking more towards the rhythm, but the rhythm is almost going to define itself with a two-hour session.
0: Right. So the, in the uh, so, you basically got a, a horror confrontation at the beginning that begins in media res. You've got the uh, the horror confrontation at the end that solves the problem that is established in the first confrontation. And in between that, you have your connective tissue, which is the one where the players will be able to explore the idea of characterization and of problem-solving. So that uh, what you can build into that is uh, a potential thing that each of the characters that you've assigned can do in order to uh, set up the final confrontation in a way that's favorable to them. And I think once you have those elements, you have really everything you need, and the other key thing I think is to not start with a whole bunch of explanatory material off the top about how the gum shoots, how the rule system works, and what role playing is, but just put them in the situation. Um, these days, when I have to explain to somebody, you know, what is tabletop role playing, I don't talk about it from an abstract perspective. I say, "Oh, well, you just imagine—it's a game where you imagine a situation and you talk through it with the players and the." the GM. So for example, you're a knight standing in front of a door and the door won't open. What do you do? And then this person who's unfamiliar with role-playing games says, "Uh, I kick it? Okay, you've kicked open the door and on the other side of the door there's a dragon and uh, the dragon looks angry at you. Now what do you do? And then the person, oh, well, I draw my sword. And then at that point I say, congratulations, you're a role player. And so uh, think about your uh, first game session that you're playing as an extension of that, that just shows the player's what the experience is by giving them the experience rather than explaining a lot of things off the top and If, for example, you run into a a rule system and you have an eye on the clock and see that, oh, well, it would really make sense to have a chase here if this was a four-hour session, but we're running late and it would take a lot of time and it would take a lot of time to explain, rather than giving them the whole thing at once just because narrative logic dictates it, to say, well, here ordinarily in a full session, there'd be a whole way of resolving this, but I'm just going to say that you got away from them. So always look for things that you can edit out of this first one, because there's a a ton of stuff that's coming their way. And then assuming because you're going to do a brilliant job, Alex, and get them all excited about role-playing the next full session, whether that's with players, that characters that they create themselves, or uh, perhaps with these characters that you've uh, assigned to them, then you can get into all the little, uh, nuggets and corners of a system and of course gumshoe is i think uh he says modestly a great choice for this because it is so simple and there's so few of those things but uh for example and fear itself i think is a really great choice for you to have settled on because you're playing ordinary people and there aren't a lot of extra crunchy bits there's no starship combat the way there is in ashen stars for example and so that can um, kind of carry you through but Remember, for this first time, you're not trying to teach them anything other than what the basic experience of role-playing is.
1: And the other thing to keep in mind uh, with that, sort of on that same note, is that cliches only look like cliches from outside. From inside, they look like familiar benchmarks. So, like Robin said, at the beginning, you're using a horror movie or you're using a horror concept that they're familiar with. Don't worry, and this would go, I guess, to not overthinking, don't worry that you're hitting the same narrative beats As final destination or wrong turn or Texas chainsaw or whatever it is, you're supposed to do that. That's what your players are looking for. They're looking for that sense of familiarity. Um, when we started role playing, we were not doing anything narratively exciting or, or, or thrilling. We were stabbing orcs in the head. And that was remarkably entertaining for a remarkably long period of time. And it's only now in our, in our jaded elderly years that Robin and I are doing all this crazy stuff. But if you've got, uh, the, the joy of having new role players, give them what they expect. Give them the, immersion in a familiar story because what you say when you sell role-playing like robin says is it's a story in which you tell it together that implies you know what the story is and so if you, you know if you're saying we're going to play halloween you know how halloween works and what you want is the sort of thrill of being inside halloween as opposed to simply watching it on the on the tv
0: yeah and i think uh, that pretty much uh, sums it up it would be self-contradictory to have a lot of different detailed advice for a question about how not to overthink it. So I think we can declare this question asked and answered.
1: The row of Grecian pillars, the Solemn, robed figures on the dais, the smell of incense, the sight of ornate armorial hangings, tell us that we have entered the history hut. But in fact, what we've entered is the hilarious fraternal order chapter (laughs) of the history hut, because the pillars are cardboard, the robes are rayon, and the rituals are made up by a drunk guy in Minnesota. Robin, you were... Captivated by the magical world of American Masonic and quasi Masonic societies, the fraternal orders of the American late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, tell us what aspect of their craziness you wish to explore today.
0: So, in a previous episode, we talked about uh, Ken's uh, raid on Powell's books in Portland, Oregon, and he left with a giant stack, and I left with one uh, book, uh, which was on the uh, remainder pile. Uh, called Burlesque Paraphernalia in Side Degree Specialties and Costumes. Uh, This was released by Fantagraphics Books, uh, and it has uh, an introduction uh, by uh, Charles Schneider, a foreword by David Copperfield, and an illuminating historical essay by social historian William D. Moore. And what this is, is it's a... Basically, it's a catalog with introductory material, a reproduction from a catalog... Uh, by the D. Moulin Brothers and Company of Greenville, Illinois, from the 1930s. And what this is, there's a whole lot of uh, incredibly elaborate uh, props, by which I mean small-scale torture devices, (laughs) which were used uh, in uh, side degrees, which are initiation ceremonies Uh, which are kind of burlesque parodies, uh, hence the use of the word burlesque. This is not about tassel twirlers or gypsy Lee. This is a totally different use of that word. And they're kind of mocking the whole idea of what outsiders think that fraternal orders are doing within uh, their walls, but at the same time uh, creating these crazy initiatory practices in these small-town organizations that then uh, put the uh, candidates through this... uh, incredible gauntlet and then of course the first thing you do if you uh, once you get through all of the um, humiliation and uh, elaborate physical pranking is then try and think of who else you can rope in to bring into the organization so I guess we want to step back a step and explain what a fraternal order is and basically these are organizations that sprang up in the late part of the 19th century. I think one of the early ones was the Modern Woodmen of America, which started in 1890 and was one of the organizations that led to this company, and uh, which still exists today. They make like band uniforms and uh, banners for uh, the lodges that remain. But back before there was a social safety net, people would band together in these fraternal organizations and uh, they would be able to uh, buy... Uh, life and health insurance, for example. And that's what kept them together. But it didn't keep people going to meetings, not even in the days before television. (laughs) And so there's all sorts of different organizations. There's the the square men, the shriners. uh, There's the modern woodmen of America. And sometimes they're associated with particular workplaces. Basically, most of the uh, uh, middle-class white men of America in the early part of the 20th century uh, would have belonged to one of these fraternal orders. But... There wasn't much to do at the meetings until they came up with this idea of these elaborate uh, pranks. And you would send away, uh, on con- uh, often on approval, from uh, the DeMillen company and buy these uh, crazy devices that would you would use in your uh, initiation rituals. And the company was uh, named after three brothers. There was uh, Ed DeMillen, who uh, invented the gadgets. There was uh, Erastus DeMillen, who was the smith- who built them and uh, Ulysses or US, as people called him, uh, US de Molin, who was the business guy who made sure all the, the money kept uh, flowing. And so uh, after uh, CthulhuCon in Portland, Ken, you and I had uh, quite a time flipping through this <laughs> uh, catalog in which all of these elaborate devices that you buy from the company at uh, adjusted for inflation, uh, quite high prices to inflict various uh, torments on your candidates, uh, some of which would be disallowed in Guantanamo.
1: <laughs> I think most of them. Most of them. <laughs> Certainly the ones where you set off uh, <laughs> black powder charges or electrocute people, which is something that happens in most of these hilarious uh, initiatory experiences. Uh, I think those yes. are those are uh, non-GITMO approved at this point. Yes,
0: there's, <laughs> there's four key elements to... A DeMillen Brothers uh, prank, and uh, the things that they sell may partake of one of them, but may partake of as many as uh, three of them in one go. So there is uh, uh, electrocution, um, typified particularly by uh, a uh, an item called the electric carpet, which is what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can get buy them in various sizes, and you'd get the battery... Uh, thing uh, attachment that would go with it. Um there was uh, water that would you would uh, squirt uh in your face or in your ear. Not dangerous at all, don't worry about that. Uh the exploding cartridge uh and of course the Demolyn brothers would supply you um with uh, their own cartridges. These could not be shipped by mail, but then they recognized uh, recommended only the use of their special cartridges in these devices. Um and uh then we're, there were things that would collapse. So, for example, uh, you would get your regular collapsible chair, which would set down your your candidate in, uh, or the one that expo- uh, also had a, a blank cartridge go off, went off when it uh, fell apart. Uh, one of the uh, and uh, they're all accompanied by hand drawn uh, cartoons, uh, which uh, are all uh, at the point of maximum agony, where your candidate uh, discovers what's going on, and so uh, when they. Uh, you tell them to sit on the table with the spikes jutting out from it and the spikes are rubber, but then water comes out and startles you and there's a picture of the guy startled by the water or startled by the electric bench. Or uh, There's various sort of obstacle test things that you would have to uh, walk around, some of them collapsible, some of them twisty-turny. There are a lot of things where you would be blindfolded and uh, given the sensation that you are uh, flying or walking through a, a sandstorm, and uh, one of the big themes is uh, riding the goat. Uh, if you were not a member of a fraternal order and you were thinking of the Masons, you would think of the urban legends in which, you know, of course, Masonry is all about uh, bowing down before uh, Baphomet, the uh, the sinister blood god and so uh, here you would be encouraged to uh, the candidates would ride a goat as part of their initiation and this would be a complicated uh, contraption available in various models in this uh, catalog in which you'd be blindfolded and placed on this uh, a fake goat and uh, jagged around and uh, you know, uh, nauseated, presumably, and often tossed off at, at the end. Uh, these became synthetic goats after a while, although uh, the DeMillen brothers originally used real goat horns for their uh, goats because, you know, nothing was too good for their customers except they had a whole uh, train car of them uh, get stuck and uh, rotted and uh, sent a horrible stench through the entire town. Not the same stench that they would sell you as uh, part of their... Uh, uh, one of the uh, other tests, the, the stench test, they had uh, various foul-odored chemicals that you would expose your uh, candidates to as well. Although well, you
1: can just imagine um, U.S. Dumaland saying, Why can't we bottle that goat stench?
0: Uh, yes, um, they, it might have inspired it.
1: Just add some electricity and we're golden, people!
0: Yes, exactly. And, uh uh... And you can certainly see the ethos of the area era in a lot of these pranks because at the end of the uh, the catalog, there's all the scripts that would you would use to introduce all the patter that would surround it, and there's uh, it comes with a whole section of costumes that you would wear. Uh, they uh, sell celebrity costumes. You might think this means you know Bing Crosby and uh, Clark Gable and James Cagney, but what they're really referring to are newspaper uh, comic strip characters. So like happy hooligan and barbie barney google and spark plug costumes and there's you know the unfortunate pages of race (laughs) costumes and uh there's a prank where the uh candidate is given a sort of squirming uh uh, baby doll figure that's hard to hold on to i think because it electrocutes you Uh, (laughs) and uh, you know for even added hilarity you could make uh it's not you know it's not if it's not funny enough to make a man care for an infant uh, you could give them a uh, a black uh, baby and that would i guess be even even more hilarious um so it it's a real sort of uh glimpse into an uh, earlier era and the language of the catalog is uh has this sort of uh Crazy uh, sort of combination of nutty formality, yet also the uh, idea that, you know, again, something really horrible is being done to the uh, people. So, uh, for example, the uh, balloon ascension, which is a device that you use to haul the candidate blindfolded up to the ceiling and then make them think they're going to uh, plummet to the bottom and die. (laughs) The, The copy is... In this new age, when aeroplanes and dirigibles are being put to practical use in the conveying of passengers, no candidate will have any serious objections to taking such a ride through the air, but when it comes to hanging onto the rope of a balloon to be drawn up above the clouds, and in the dark at that, well, that's a horse of another color, to cap the climax, when up a mile or more, uh, i.e. at the ceiling. The balloon takes fire and the rope becomes so hot that the candidate can hold on no longer. He lets go, thinking it's all over. To his great surprise and unspeakable joy, he is caught in a net. The parachute opens and he lands safely but exhausted. The (laughs) candidate should be drawn up a few feet, then quietly lowered, then drawn up again, etc. He will finally imagine that he's been carried very high. This effect can be produced by speaking through paper tubes while he is being drawn up, gradually lowering the tubes until they point down. Uh, So that's uh $55 in 1936 money for your uh, balloon ascension and then uh an extra 11.25 for the uh, magneto and cord that's the electrocuting device uh, used in this particular <laughs> instance this
1: th- th- it amazes me that there aren't about 50 um uh, murder mysteries set in these things um given how it, th- it's common enough that there's whole uh, catalogs full of it, I'm just surprised that it isn't as, you know, overused a bit that the hilarious balloon prank goes wrong and the guy dies as, you know... Or the
0: fake guillotine they sell you turns out... <laughs> the real guillotine. <laughs> Switch with the real guillotine. Who
1: saw that coming? Um As, you know, some guy who, who drinks poison in the library, uh, given that probably more readers of mid-century mysteries had been to fraternal order meetings than had ever been in a, a drawing room library. I, I'm just amazed that this sort of thing isn't a bigger part of, at the very least, the rest of mid-century culture, but it seems to sort of have existed in its own little world. And even even in 1940, even in 1930, when that, uh, that catalog is from, you get the sort of sense that it's calved off from the rest of society in
0: interesting ways. It's a really crazy forgotten element of American history, but that was really widespread. And it doesn't uh, it isn't mysterious why it was secret, because you were sworn to secrecy, mm-hmm. and, of course, you wouldn't want to admit to people who weren't in the organization that you had been, uh, you know, behaved humiliatingly when threatened with death. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, you wouldn't want to spill the beans because, you know, uh, the pharmacist da- uh, who worked two doors down from you, he seemed like a fine fellow to then take and put under the fake guillotine, and so this was sort of uh, self-perpetuating. And it was also something that groups would... Take and take to conventions of fraternal orders and do uh, as part of kind of a show there. And so that was an, an even bigger deal. But these uh, catalog is full of testimonials for people from groups. Uh, some of them perhaps even actual actual real testimonials who are saying, you know, our group was dwindling in numbers and nobody came to the meetings until we started putting people in the human centipede. <laughs> yes, people, it's literally called the human centipede and it's not the horrific image from the uh, uh, Grand Guignol uh, horror movie series now, but it's called the human centipede and it's a contraption that you uh, stick a whole bunch of people in a row in and then jog them around and there's a weird face on the end and uh, it's... Uh, it's uh, really quite uh, crazy. And Ken, if you want to investigate this further, um, there is actually a museum that was opened in 2010 in Greenville, Illinois, uh, to house a collection of all this stuff. Uh, there are a number of magicians, uh, David Copperfield, for example, who uh, collect this stuff, but it's now in a museum in Greenville. So I, th- I think that's only like a four-hour drive from you. So you could... That's uh,
1: a simple four-hour drive, and I could see the uh, fake guillotine for
0: myself. Exactly and a fine selection of uh of uh, goats to ride so you've already hit on the obvious uh story which is that the uh you know the investigators are investigating something sinister and uh they then penetrate the fraternal order and then they realize that oh that it's just a prank but then the prank turns out to be real Um, and you could also you know play with sort of the esoterror idea that the people who don't know what's going on in the fraternal order think that they really are um, bowing down to goats and drinking blood and all these things that they're they're mocking and that could create the mystical energy that uh, summons real creatures how else would you uh, use this in fiction or gaming
1: i think that um, one of the things that you can do certainly is that you use the sort of Ray Bradbury's uh innocence of this ridiculous organization as and I don't want to use it as the cover for the secret uh group of Satanists, uh you know, Stepford Wives uh style or uh, wishes Eastwick style. It's too obvious. I would like those guys to be sort of doing all this stuff and the, the things that they're doing have little tiny bits of ancient real Masonic wisdom from our Eli- Elias Ashmole days. And they have to put together, sort of like um middle-aged cigar-smoking goonies, they have to put together the bits of their ridiculous side-order lore and use it to confront some genuine sorcerous threat. And they're just good enough at the sort of quasi-masonry that they do that they recognize the existence of this threat. And now... There, that you can, you can either play it, you know, for sort of 80s lighthearted, uh, like I say, middle aged goonies atmosphere, or you can play it as a sort of, we are a secret society. Do we actually trust everyone? Because the only reason we're actually here is to get the benefit on the dental insurance and because Clyde, um, is in my church and I have to stay cool with him so my wife can stay in the choir. Um, and, now that sort of it sort of sounds like it's sort of a a a drama system type situation you begin as these uh ridiculous side order guys and then it turns into uh something more real than they signed up for but now they can't unsign up for it because sure enough they've promised to the hilarious mechanical goat that they're gonna uh, preserve the secret and now if they don't That guillotine's going to turn real or something.
0: And uh, on a closing note, I'd just like to read one of the testimonials. Uh, This is the one that appears under the page for the electric razor. Uh, Guess what that is? (laughs) Lots of fun. I received trick guns and spanking machine, and we put on some work with them and had lots of fun that we would not have had if we had not got them. We mailed out cards to all members, and we had a large crowd, and they all enjoyed the new stunts. And I think that the candidates enjoyed it, too. I'm in closing money order for the full amount. And that's from L. A. Also Brooks, Washington Camp Number Twenty Four, the P.O.S. of A. Salisbury, North Carolina. Uh, so uh, let's, uh, when you go back in time and are uh, uh, pledged to possibly join a fraternal order, you might want to uh, uh, beware of uh, electrocution, spurting water, collapsible furniture, and of course, exploding cartridges and <laughs> gunplay. I hear Ken's Shelves-a-Gronin, which suggests that we're once more going to take a vicarious paw through Ken's bookshelf. In an earlier episode, we heard Ken's travel advisory from his trip back to Oklahoma City. Well, it turns out that there are a few used bookstores still in that fabled uh, prairie town, and Ken took all the good stuff from them, and he's going to tell you all about what he got as I uh, cue the list. And it strikes me from this list that uh, there might be a, a little bit of extra paranoia uh, in uh, in Oklahoma City. Now I realize there's selection bias at, at work here, but uh, just bear with me and see if you uh, uh, follow my thesis. The first one uh, is uh, to uh, mention a name that comes up altogether too often on this podcast, Exercising Hitler: The Occupation and Denazification of Germany by Frederick Taylor. Uh, what uh, do you expect to learn about this subject that you don't already know?
1: Um, I expect a lot of details. Uh, the denazification of Germany is one of those sort of uh, fraught uh, historical moments. Uh, everyone is all is, is quite rightly very mad at the sort of half. Uh, baked job that, uh, the various allies did in denazifying Germany and the various sort of solutions that they went to when they realized that pretty much everyone who'd been in any sort of, um, uh, responsible position in Germany had to be a Nazi and as people will generally sort of made the best of it and went along to go along. And in some cases were kind of enthusiastic about it because, hey, it's, you know, like a fraternal order, but with, uh, more gunplay. And so, we had this sort of the backlash to solving the last war's problem when we debathified Iraq and we debathified it so convincingly that all the bath party members were out of work and joined an insurgency as opposed to sticking around to run the library or whatever it was that the Nazis were doing in, in Germany. Right. So, you've got this
0: really difficult problem of sorting out the people who were just unheroic and mm-hmm. went along to go along from the really truly sinister. Uh, people who uh, not only deserve to be punished but will uh, become a problem later if you leave them in power so there's sort of a damned if you do damned if you don't situation because if you kick too many of them out they'll band together and become an insurgency and if you leave too many of them in, they will form a deep uh, state and cause you uh, trouble while holding the levers of power.
1: Right, uh, down the road. And in and in Germany, uh, you know, looking back on it, I, th- I think we sort of got about the best possible result we could have, but it didn't look like that at the time, and it, plenty of times it, it hasn't looked like it in specific cases when you find out that, you know, Klaus Barbie has been living in, you know, comfortable retirement in America because he did some favors for the OSS back in the day or whatever. Um, so this is, uh, sort of a, a, drills down into the specific way that you, you take, uh, that, uh, totalitarian, uh, society, that, that sort of magical fascism and, you know, exorcise it. Literally, you, you take the, the, the spirit of Nazism out of it. And of course, you know, historically we know how that worked, but this is a lot of good information about um, who did what when, who ran away from whom when, and it's good for uh, setting stuff in the ruins of the Third Reich. Uh, if you've got your blossoming Fourth Reich-type storyline, this is a good place to look for seeds of it. And also, it's good for your uh, Operation Werewolf, in case I ever write uh, Gegen Werewolf um, uh, for Simon. I will have yet more sources on immediate post-war Germany.
0: Next up, on a similar tip, the Axeman conspiracy, the Nazi plan for a Fourth Reich and how the U.S. Army defeated it by Scott Andrew Selby. Uh, What was the Fourth Reich, and how did the U.S. Army defeat it?
1: Well, when you buy the book, it turns out the Fourth Reich, in this case, was the guy who used to command the Hitler Youth. His name was Artur Oxman. He was in the bunker when Hitler killed himself. He picked up the gun that Hitler used to kill himself, apparently. So you've got sort of an Unknown Army's vibe right there. And then what he does with his power is he decides to set up a trucking company and use that as the lever in which to recreate the Hitler Youth and a series of political parties, uh, in various, uh, cities around Germany that will be a secret Nazi party and he will then become the Fuhrer of the Fourth Reich. But if you actually read, and he's, he's tracked down by, I swear to God, a guy named Jack Hunter, who is a lieutenant in the United <laughs> States CIC, the Counterintelligence Corps. Uh, Joe and
0: Posse was, was busy. Joe,
1: Joe Posse was hunting down Japanese war criminals in the Philippines. He was busy. Um, but Jack Hunter, Jack Hunter, Nazi Hunter, um, but not a Nazi. You know, all right. I'm, I'll come in again. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, he, he went undercover. He disguised himself as a Nazi. He, um, uh, showed up and went into this uh, conspiracy, which of course turned out to be a small trucking company, not exactly a hidden bunker full of SS vampires and flying saucers, but. Archer Axeman becomes, again, a, a key that you can turn to get yourself to that hidden bunker or the secret Ananarba vampire plan or the werewolf movement or whatever else.
0: Right. Because you can always take this thing that wasn't a thing in, in real life and make it a thing in, and you know, make it genre a thing. fiction. Exactly.
1: Um, yeah, the, 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 the book, uh, you know, does everything it can to overhype the, the story, which is good for gaming, if not necessarily great for history, but it's another, uh, sort of a, a case study if you're saying what would my hidden magical Third Reich look like or Fourth Reich look like you can now look at what a non-magical uh, not super well hidden Fourth Reich looked like and you can build yours On on that basis.
0: Speaking of what Joe Posse was up to, Spies for Nippon by Tony Matthews.
1: And this deals with the Japanese TO network, which operated out of Spanish embassies worldwide. It was centered at the Japanese embassy in Spain, um, but then worked through the Spanish uh, embassies in the allied countries, and it turned out to produce a a fat lot of uh, intel for the Japanese uh, government. Although, obviously, when you are going into war with someone who outproduces uses your industry 100 to 1, it almost doesn't matter how much intel you get. And then when they've broken your code to boot, um, The Spies for Nippon, again, becomes a sort of a tactical success uh, in a lot of ways, but strategically meaningless, just like most intelligence stories really turn out to be. But in this particular case, it's the Japanese spy network, which is something that I don't have a lot of books on, and so it was good to have that one.
0: Uh, Next up, uh, we're sort of in uh, the territory of uh, that series, The Nick, with Clive Owen. The Knife Man, Blood, Body Snatching, and The Birth of modern surgery by Wendy Moore, uh, when does this book uh cite the birth of modern surgery?
1: Well, this is uh not Jack Hunter but his spiritual predecessor, John Hunter, who was a surgeon in Scotland or he was Scottish and then went to London um, uh, The Hunterian Society of London and the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons are named after him uh, and this is uh, he becomes a fellow of the Royal Society in seventeen sixty seven He begins uh his practice in the seventeen sixties, I guess.
0: So this is much earlier than what we've much been thinking. Much earlier than the Nick. This or...
1: is uh classic Birkin hair, or it's a it's a little bit pre birkin hair even, but it's still body snatchers and, and uh Benjamin Franklin. He's also very socially connected with the sort of um Whig uh movement. So he's buddies with Franklin and he's buddies with a lot of these other guys in um uh in uh Georgian London and the uh fact that he is of course involved in, you know, uh, hunting for uh, fresh corpses makes him a beautiful place to put uh, uh, story uh, hooks. And he famously uh, claimed that um, syphilis and gonorrhea were the same thing and claimed that he'd proved it uh, by inoculating someone with them. And and uh, he inoculated someone with gonorrhea and it, and they got syphilis because his needle wasn't sterile which turns out to be a real problem. The the legend is that he inoculated himself, which is actually not true. Um he did it to somebody else because he was a surgeon not a not a crazy person. But he, he also had an anatomy studio where he would carve people up uh, illegally to teach doctors and he um uh, had uh, uh, on his house uh, the the door on the street would take you into his nice house, and then the door down in the alley would take you into his creepy surgery. So people say that maybe that's what Jekyll and Hyde are based on, is this guy. So you've got uh, sort of the birth of surgery and the birth of horror happening simultaneously there in 1760s London.
0: Uh, speaking of things that uh, happen simultaneously, or nearly so, but not nearly as famously so, we have Southern counterpart to Lewis and Clark, the Freeman and Cusp, the Expedition of 1806 by Dan L. Florens.
1: Yeah, that I got at the uh, Cowboy uh, and Western Heritage Museum uh, in in the uh, bookshop there, because they had a you know, unsurprisingly substantial collection of Western history stuff. And I am a big fan of the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition. There's a lot of sort of weird geopolitical stuff that Thomas Jefferson is up to with Lewis and Clark and with the Pike expedition. And this is the third expedition, the one no one has ever heard of, because it got about halfway up the Red River and then the Spanish sort of arrested them and turned them around, Um, which is uh why it doesn't really get to be a big famous expedition, because it sort of got to maybe the southeastern corner of Oklahoma before being told to go back home and stop bothering the Spanish.
0: Right. They were expedited exactly. out of their but expedition.
1: But that is, um, uh, you know, it's not their fault that uh, they wound up running into the Spanish, and they did distract the Spanish from Zebulon Pike, so if you look at it as sort of a, a big Jeffersonian uh, play for the West, they're an important part of it, and they're they were real naturalists, so they have interesting records of what the Southwest was like. They have um, uh, they they made great contacts with the the Indians at the time, and it's part of that you know great Western history of America that I am so
0: fond of. Next up, we have Napoleon's Proconsul in Egypt: The Life and Times of Bernardino Drovetti, and this is by Ronald T. Ridley. And
1: the title is a lie; he was never Napoleon's Proconsul in Egypt. He was Napoleon's consul in Egypt. He was his diplomatic ambassador to the Sultan of Egypt, or the Pasha of Egypt, um, the viceroy, uh, Ali Pasha. um, And that's the guy that gets set up after the French are kicked out of Egypt. So he obviously has a lot of diplomatic to do when he shows up and says, hi, I'm from the guys that tried to run you for three years, only left. Uh, But he also, in addition to being a uh, apparently pretty good diplomat, was also a Dealer in antiquities and amateur archaeologist in the spirit of my own beloved uh, Giovanni Baptista Belzoni, who hated his guts because he would tear apart an obelisk before Belzoni could tear it apart and uh, <laughs> and steal it and put it in his museum or send it back to France. So you have rival antiquarians, and I have lots of books about Belzoni, but there was no book at all about um uh, Drovetti until this book got uh, written in 1998. So – I picked it up because now I have both sides of that hilarious rivalry, uh, plus plenty of mummies and obelisks and pieces of Egyptian temples to be carted around uh Napoleonic era Europe, which is great fun I think in a, in its own way
0: right so you've got uh you could easily do a, a campaign uh in various periods of Egyptology about uh, Egyptologists trying to uh, loot tombs before the other guy, and uh, that's a, a model for that in the Napoleonic era. Uh next up we have Kingdoms of the Savannah by Jan Vansina.
1: Yeah, that this is a classic uh work of narrative history. It's about the uh the sort of south of the jungle, north of uh the desert stretch of South Central Africa. It's the kingdoms of uh the Congo, uh Angola, Luba, uh Cuba. Um, the kingdom around Uganda that sort of shows up and then unshows up as the Arab slave traders keep trying to wreck it. And it's all these countries that are at the beginning of, you know, sort of what we would recognize as a sophisticated state formation in Africa. But it's all before or mostly all before the Europeans come in and, uh, declare them all to be part of, you know, some uh, big pink empire somewhere. And so it's their it own, their usual habit. Exactly. Their own, um, sort of uh, moment of early modernity that happens down there in, sub- in sub-Saharan in sub Africa uh, and creates the facts on the ground that people like Stanley and Livingston are responding to uh, in 150 or 200 years. And that's just an area of history that I don't actually have. Um, sort of a a dedicated work on, or I didn't until I got Jan Vanceena's Kingdoms of the Savannah. And I strongly suspect that, for example, the Kingdom of Angola and probably the Kingdom of Congo uh, have a lot more going for them than we are generally led to believe by people who just don't want to learn more kingdoms.
0: Next up, we have Black Empire by George S. Shiler.
1: And this is a classic work of uh, pulp that is almost completely unknown because it was written as a serial in the Pittsburgh Daily Record, I believe is the name of the newspaper, Pittsburgh Record.
0: Wow, a local newspaper serialized pulp.
1: Yes. Uh, George Schuyler was a African-American author and commentator, and he had a column, and H.L. Uh, Mencken called him one of the best columnists in America uh, and tried to get him lots of gigs, but obviously people already were mad at Mankin, and they certainly weren't going to stick their neck out for a black guy. So Schuyler is pretty much stuck in the black press. And in order to raise circulation, he would go down and investigate lynching, or he would investigate Jim Crow, or he would investigate something, and then write, you know, uh, stories from the front. Um, and he wanted to be sent to Ethiopia to cover the war, but they wouldn't uh, send him, they sent another guy. Uh, but the Pittsburgh record had sort of the arm lock on covering the Ethiopian War, so this guy's in the 30s. Uh, and since he didn't get to go to Ethiopia, he wrote his own novel, uh, or actually his pair of novels, um, which are published together as Black Empire, in which a black genius named Dr. Belsitis sets up a secret conspiracy of African Americans who are going to liberate Africa from the European and it's very much like the uh, Fu Manchu novel, where he basically wants to crush fascism. This is the black Fu Manchu, and he wants to crush white guys in your in Africa. And since it's a black author, the author is one hundred and ten percent for all of this. <laughs> <laughs> and it is um, it's a so humdinger. The, this
0: character, I s- assume, unlike Fu Manchu, is not presented as a as a villain temporarily doing a good thing.
1: No, he's presented very much like a sort of, if a white guy had written this novel, you would say that it was really racist and reductionist because the guy's like got a a blonde girlfriend who he's always toying with, but never, you know, um, uh, uh, never treats with any respect. And he's, uh, he poisons people en masse and starts wars and plots massacres. But he's doing it basically to, you know, drive the white guy out of Africa and he's doing it. Um, so
0: it's the, uh, he's, he's got an omelet to make and some eggs need to be broken in the process.
1: Exactly. And so, uh, Dr. Belsitis, I think, makes a really great pulp, uh, and I don't even want to say villain, but I'll say pulp, um, uh, anti-hero? anti-hero um, who is, uh, you know, someone that you could, you could easily put in if you are feeling like, um, uh, you don't want to get on that third rail of Fu Manchu. George Schuyler turns out to have been a famously conservative uh, uh, politically. And one of the things that his book is saying, and it keeps saying, is that the reason we're succeeding is we're not always running our mouth about our plans. Unlike, you know, Dubois and unlike Marcus Garvey, we're just sort of setting up our black empire and not telling anyone. And sure enough, that's going to work. Uh, and he's got the very sort of uh, individualist attitude that the uh, an African mind is as good as a, a white mind. And if it just stops thinking like a white person wants it to think sure enough, you can, uh, uh, liberate Africa and build a super heat ray and invent awesome flying, uh, death machines and everything else that you need, because these minds have been fundamentally wasted and all it requires is turn them on to create super science and, uh, and create a, uh, it's not a paradise. I mean, he's certainly honest about the rivers of blood that have to flow to get your black empire. But, um, again, he's, it's very much a sort of heroic nation-building, take that. Uh They certainly spend a lot of time killing the Italians. Like I say, he's writing it in the wake of the Abyssinian War. Um, the first uh, novella is Black International, which tells you sort of the other thing that he's making fun of. So he's making fun of Marcus Garvey and the communists.
0: Uh, and so this has been uh, recently re-released?
1: Uh, not super re-released. It was uh, uh, re-released in 1993 by Northeastern University Press, but they wanted a million billion dollars for it, or not a million billion, but a lot more than I was going to pay for a, a, <laughs> a pulp novel. And when I found it used in the um, uh, Second Chance books in War Acres oklahoma i uh, leapt on it with a gladsome cry especially because it was 30 percent off there Woo-hoo. so not super reasonably priced until you add that 30 percent in and then it became quite attractive to me but i'd wanted it for forever because i think that uh dr Belsitis is is vastly underused and for god's sake i'm the man to overuse him now so
0: so if you the the lesson there is if you uh just keep going to use bookstores. Eventually you'll find what you want at the price you want. That
1: is that is my less that is my life lesson, Robin. If I can tell the young people anything.
0: Exactly. Uh next up the Zurich numbers by Bill Granger. And I bought that um
1: and I put it on the list basically because I don't think I've mentioned Bill Granger's spy novels. The Pierce Brosnan movie The November Man was based on one of them. Um and Uh, Granger's novels are harder to find in ebook. I don't know his heirs are squabbling with somebody or whatever, but you really kind of have to go to used bookstores and pull them out. They're, they're pretty straightforward. They're good actioners. And a lot of them have, because uh, Granger was a newspaper man, a lot of them are not just rooted in, you know, today's headlines, but he sort of is trying to look forward and saying what kind of developments are going to happen. So he's got a novel about a, uh, a thaw in the Soviet bloc right before Glasnost happens. And he's got a, a novel about terrorists, uh, crashing something into an American monument, uh, uh, before, well before 9-11. I think it's even before the first attack, attack on the Trade Center. Um, and the Zurich numbers is, uh, a banking plot, uh, to bring about the fall of civilization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in the great, uh, way that a lot of 70s and 80s spy novels did. But I just, I like Bill Granger. I think that his, um, uh, his spy Devereux is, um, he's pretty clearly a Harry Sue, but he's a well written Harry Sue, and I, and I enjoy the books. I think that they're, that they're perfectly solid spy fiction, and Granger deserves better than one Pierce Brosnan movie 20 years after his books went out of print.
0: Uh, next up, Captain Cutthroat by John Dixon Carr. In my continuing tradition of underrated uh, workmanlike
1: novelists, John Dixon Carr is the master of the locked room mystery, uh, and Captain Cutthroat is something from the other genre of things that he loved, um, uh, like uh, Freemasons Love uh, Electricity, the historical adventure novel with a locked room mystery sort of in it. Uh, it, (laughs) Captain
0: Cutthroat... So he gets locked in his boat?
1: uh, No, there are... um, uh, In a lot of his novels, people just travel back in time and have to solve a crime. Uh, And in this one, we are set in uh, 1805 in Napoleon's camp and people are stabbing the sentries In uh, full light, and no one can figure out how it's being done, and the the killer is signing the notes that he leaves Captain Cutthroat, or actually Captain Cut the Throat, and our hero, who is a Scarlet Pimpernel-type guy, a British spy uh, disguised as a Frenchman, has to figure out who Captain Cutthroat is, or else Fouché, the sinister minister of police, will have him killed. And so it's a, it's a great cat and also cat novel. It's a, it's a really great locked room mystery that in Carr's, um, uh, later years, he sort of delighted in throwing off. In a chapter and then saying, now that I've done in a chapter what you would take a whole novel to do, I'm going to talk about sword fighting for a while. <laughs> but uh John Dixon Carr and his pseudonym Carter Dixon are well worth looking out. If you haven't read any John Dixon Carr and you enjoy the locked room genre or you enjoy that sort of 30s uh, mystery feel, uh, hunt them down. People say that his characters are are, are thin or unconvincing, but at least his characters have motives and it's those motives that drive them to do things and it's so much more realistic than you know, simply being people who take up spaces on a train table the way that Agatha Christie mysteries turn out to be nine times out of ten um or the mis- motive is so obviously designed to create the the mystery as opposed to the other way around. so I think that john Dixon Carr is underrated and well worth a look, and certainly you should look at his awesome uh period fiction, which I don't think even gets the love that his locked room fiction does, which is still not enough love um
0: so the next one uh I think kind of tips its hand, although there's a bit of a tell in the fact that it has a question mark in its subtitle, and that's The Secret Life of Uri Geller, CIA Master Spy? Master Spy? By uh, Jonathan Margolis. Yeah, um...
1: (laughs) <laughs> the Yuri Geller as CIA agent is one of those things that sort of percolates along in the corners of the mind control conspiracy world and some of the other conspiracy worlds. The CIA did work with magicians early on in its career uh, to master things like misdirection so they could do um, uh, dead drops and, and, and brush passes and things like that. They do have a psychic warfare program, as we all know. And so it's like, well, this guy's a magician and he's a psychic. Maybe he's a CIA master spy, and he works with some people that a lot of people have a very strong vested interest in believing were, were a CIA front. I don't know that there's any proof that uh, this guy, Puharic, who was one of the big psychic researchers in the 70s, was any more of a CIA front than anyone else who has the government show up with a dump truck of money and say, do what you want. We have money um, is. But uh, – Certainly, I don't mind anyone blaggarding the name of Yuri Geller because the guy's a charlatan, and so therefore, I think that the notion of him turning out to actually be a CIA master spy is a great possibility for a conspiracy uh game or a conspiracy concept, or even just drilling down for the sort of guys who are elsewhere in the index who you can then introduce later on and find uh key links between them and some other CIA operation that you actually care about.
0: Penultimately, we have... Alexandria, the Journal of the Western Cosmological Traditions, numbers 1 and 2, edited by David Fideller. And these
1: are uh, books of essays. They're the size of standard sort of um, uh, uh, trade paperbacks. Uh, They have um, uh, long essays on various arcane topics, such as uh, Cosmopolis or the New Alexandria, uh, The Biographies of Hypatia, The Science and Art of Animating Statues, uh, the Alchemical Harp of Mechtild of Hackeborn, The Castle of Heroes, W.B. Yeats' Celtic Mystical Order, Michael Myers' Hec- Alchemical Quadrature, Hecate's Iinx, Inks, An Ancient Theurgic Tool, uh, Arthur Versluys on uh, Gnostic and Alchemical Art. So there's lots of sort of little essays, or I, su- I suspect some longer essays, on topics near and dear to my heart. Uh, these were uh, reasonably priced again, especially when you consider the 30% off. So I picked them up. I don't know when or whether I will ever get to read them all, but knowing that I have them means that when the essay comes up inevitably in a Google search in two years, I can reach for it on the shelf as opposed to uh shout con and have to order it on Amazon.
0: And uh, finally, I have a bad feeling about this last one. <laughs>
1: Do you? Yeah. Imagine the feeling you would have if you had seen the book.
0: Right. Um, uh, <laughs> It's Exo-Vaticana Petrus Romanus, Project L-U-C-I-F-E-R, and the Vatican's Astonishing Plan for the Arrival of an Alien Savior by Thomas Horn and Chris Putnam. So uh, what percentage of this is UFO paranoia and what percentage of this is uh, warmed over anti-Catholicism?
1: Um, some a large portion of it is, uh, UFO paranoia. Another large portion of it is, as you suggest, uh, warmed over anti-Catholicism, joined together in the, uh, sort of Jesuit astronomy Ah,
0: the old Jesuit astronomy
1: angle. The Jesuits are are big uh, devotees of astronomy and have been since the 1700s, when or 1600s even, when their uh, knowledge of telescopes and eclipses gave them the the comparative advantage against uh, various pagans and Indians and Chinese out there. Um, And they could say, ha-ha, our astronomy is better than your stupid astronomy. Go for Christ. And they're still uh, very much at the forefront of a lot of astronomical work. And once you start having jesuits and astronomy it's only a hop skip and a jump to ufo conspiracies certainly if you're the kind of book that literally can't keep all the text on the back cover on the back cover they have to
0: put <laughs> blurbs on the front cover uh th- this is how are they going to combat an alien invasion if they can't even keep their back cover text on the back cover
1: the the, the, the um uh, everything that is not text is a UFO beaming a light on St. Peter's Dome. I swear to goodness. This book is. Are,
0: are you accusing their cover of being unsubtle?
1: I am accusing their cover of being awesome. If that's unsubtle to you, fine. But, uh, this talks about, um, the, uh, the Magonian fairies are brought in. It talks about, um, uh, And
0: what are the Magonian fairies for the uninitiative?
1: Uh, the Magonian fairies, there's a, honest to God, a record in, uh, early medieval times, about the ninth century of, uh, guys who live in a skyland called Magonia, and they came down and talked to people in, I think it's Burgundy, uh, and said, hey, we're from Magonia. What have you got to trade? We've got metal. And They wrote it down and said, these are the fairies. And they came down out of the sky and they traded for, they traded us metal at the end. And this has become a giant deal in the UFO community because, haha, it's aliens who come to, uh, Earth in the ninth century as opposed to the twentieth century and are doing alieny things, but they're being called fairies instead of, uh, aliens because that's what the mental, uh, universe is. And this Magonia incident is one of the big sort of, uh, levers that, uh, creates the psychosocial UFO movement as opposed to the, uh, nuts-and-bolts UFO movement, and I think that Horn and Putnam are trying to rescue it back for nuts-and-bolts UFOs, but the notion that the alien savior is on his way and the Vatican is getting ready to uh, make him the Antichrist, it ties into Petrus Romanus is the um, uh, famous prophecy of St. Malachi that uh, gives you the um, all the popes and what they will do, and the last pope, Petrus Romanus, will be the last pope, and he's, I think, in league with the Antichrist or something, and... I forget if Benedict was supposed to be Petrus Romanus or if it's good old Francis that's Petrus Romanus, but someone is Petrus Romanus and the UFOs is coming and the Jesuits are behind it all. Also, Magonian fairies. So you can't not go wrong with this book as far as I'm concerned.
0: So forgive me if I'm not following the logic, Uh, (laughs) but so is the alien savior a good guy until the Pope gets a hold of him and wrecks him and turns him into the Antichrist? Or is he already a bad guy and the Pope is just going to make him worse?
1: The alien savior is a serpent alien. And I think now that I've said that, maybe that has put together the last piece of information that you need. Um, he's a bad guy. He comes from evil stars, not good stars. And because the Pope is evil because he's Catholic and in league with Jesuits, he will once more pull the wool over decent Protestant folk like Chris Putnam and Thomas Horn, or rather not like them because they have warned us all in the pages of exo-Vaticana. um, it's uh it's kind of a a thrill to see the vatican actually being the bad guy in this conspiracy because this is the one that the eu and the uh american um establishment are the bad guys in in the uh, priory of sion and if you uh, i think we've talked about the stargate conspiracy where Price and Picnit say that the whole Holy Blood, Holy Grail thing is propaganda to lay the grounds for our alien savior, um, but they blame uh, the, the the gumment, and now it's the church that's getting blamed, which I think if you're laying the groundwork for an alien savior, it's not before time that you're
0: bringing them in. And by alien savior, they mean alien destroyer. Alien destroyer,
1: space Satan, a serpent being from, I don't know which star, but I'll bet it's a bad star. I'll bet it's... I think Savior's
0: mis- misleading. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Call me crazy. It's <laughs> like the wrong word. Yeah, well, Mitzi, but, but that, I think that's what they're trying to get you to think, is when I hear about Alien Savior, now I will be suspicious, because this book has filled me with doubt and anomie.
0: I guess so. Well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm just going to have to wander off and uh, look at some trees or something <laughs> after this, but uh, fortunately, uh, that's the last book on the list, and therefore uh, the end of yet another exciting edition of Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games Dork Tower Pro
1: Fantasy Software
0: and Palgrain Press
1: Music as always is by James Semple
0: Keep us in mechanical goats by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin Talk about
1: Join such illustrious patrons as
0: This week's question asker Alex Guerrero
1: Build awareness of your game Kickstarter book or alien conspiracy by advertising with us Grab the rate sheet at our site
0: On Twitter he's at Kenneth
1: Height And he's at Robin D.
0: Laws See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.